Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Well, good to see you all. A um, couple of announcements before we get going. First of all, you may have noticed Dad isn't here. Um, wasn't here last night either. Uh, he is not feeling good at all. So, um, and uh, you know if he's not here, he's really not feeling good. So, if you could throw up a prayer too for him, that would be much appreciated. We've got, uh, you should pick up the bulletin and be praying over all those people listed in there. We've got a lot of folks who need uh, prayer, uh, some battling stage four cancer, um, just some really tough stuff out there, and so would appreciate that. On a lighter note, we have, we are organizing, both the youth group and the kids ministry is organizing a trip to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. And so if you want your kiddos or grandkiddos to go, then you can sign up uh, I think the date is August 6th, I believe, is when they'll be going over there and just doing kind of a caravan of, of parents and kids to spend the day at the Ark Encounter. Uh, kids 10 and under are free. Uh, so that's the good news, but we need to know who's going because we're getting a group rate. So if you want to go, if you're interested in, in going and taking your kids or your grandkids or whatever, go see Kayla right after service. She'll be out there at the table with a sign-up sheet, and you can sign up kids and grandkids to go there. But, you know, somebody's going to have to come and help watch them, or we're going to need some volunteers to help with that as well. So that's what's going on there. Um, a couple other things. One is, I know we've got a lot of people traveling right now. Um, I don't go on Facebook or Instagram much, but I have seen so many of the people who are not here. Maybe they're watching online on a beach somewhere. Shame on you. Um, I only go to the beach when the Lord calls me. Um, but anyway, uh, like, oh, come on. You know, I don't, one, I don't like the beach. Two, I don't go in the water. You know, they put man-eating sharks in there for a reason. That's God's way of saying this isn't for you. Um, but be praying for, for all the people traveling and, and, and so forth, because traveling right now is just crazy. I'm going to have to travel a little bit with Megan over the next two months, and it's always one of those things where it's, you know, it's great if you can get there, but they're canceling so many flights and everything else that it's, it's gotten interesting out there. Um, and one of the people will be hopefully shooting a video this week. I don't know if you knew this or not. Uh, she was here last night. Our own Becky Campbell just got back from a missions trip in the Amazon. She was down on the Amazon River uh, sleeping on a hammock in a boat. Um, she told me last night she got off maybe five hours sleep over five days. Uh, so it wasn't very comfortable, but it was an amazing trip, and we're, we hope to shoot a video with her this week talking about it. Um, this week, I, I'm telling you, um, Megan and I really kind of made a commitment to pray more, study more, and, and so <laughs> once we started to do that, it just seemed like Satan started taking body shot after body shot after body shot, and it was just one thing after another, and Megan was just in tears the other night, like, what, what is going on? And I'm just like, I know, I know, 
But um, then by the end of the week, things just seemed to get better. There were some, some folks we needed to reach out to and talk to, and, and, and that turned out to be okay, we think. And then, and you need to understand something. I um, have done pretty much a 180 from where I was 15 years ago when it comes to partisan politics. I don't like partisan politics um, anymore. Uh, in my own opinion, and I used to work in partisan politics. I worked on campaigns. I worked on Capitol Hill for several years. I've, I've helped write legislation, whip legislation. I've done all that. But in my opinion, especially over the last 12, 14 years, it just seems like both parties have just turned into a gaggle of children uh, who are just stomping their feet all the time and screaming all the time and not listening to one another. So I don't like to get involved in partisan politics. That being said, I think it was the great Baptist preacher Adrian Rogers who back in the 80s was asked by a politician. Adrian preached in Memphis before he went to be with the Lord, large Baptist congregation there. And a politician asked him, said, why are you preaching on politics? And Adrian Rogers said, I don't preach on politics. He said, I, I preach on the Bible. You politicians have gotten involved in biblical issues. That's your problem. And so I'll explain a little bit more because the polls show that Americans just don't understand this. You know, I spent years as a constitutional attorney, so I had to study this um, left and right and upward and backward. But this Friday, the Supreme Court overturned the 49-year precedent of Roe v. Wade. Let me just tell you where I'm coming at biblically. Praise God. Um, the, historically, the church has always stood against abortion. In fact, you need to understand abortion has been around for thousands of years. It is nothing new. It was practiced in the time of the Greeks. It was practiced in the time of the Romans. It has been around for a long time. And I know that some of you thought that when Roe v. Wade was overturned, abortion would become illegal everywhere. That is not true. That is not what happened. Um, you need to understand that abortion was legal in 20 states before Roe v. Wade and illegal in 30 states. What Roe did in January of 1973 was claim that there was a federal right, a constitutional right to abortion. It took the majority of even constitutional scholars like Alexander Bickle, I told you I've had to study this stuff at Yale Law School, who was a, who was a liberal, even Alexander Bickle said, I don't understand this at all. Um, because abortion was around at the time of the framing of the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson knew about it. Benjamin Franklin knew about it. It was not enshrined anywhere in the text of the Constitution for a reason. The Constitution is very clear. If it is not stated in the Constitution, then it is left for the states to decide. That's what the Constitution states, and I know that doesn't make either liberals or conservatives happy. Conservatives want it completely outlawed, liberals want it to be completely legalized, but the Constitution states that each individual state will make their own policy on any issue that is not absolutely stated in the Constitution. And by the way, I went to a progressive law school. I did not go to a conservative law school. I went to Cornell. Um, all of my professors, save one, and he taught uh, corporate law, were liberals. None of them were conservative. And if you would ask every single one of them, and I asked quite a few of them, what do you think of Roe v. Wade? They said, well, 
We like the decision, but the logic is ridiculous. And in fact, before she died, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said Roe v. Wade is based upon no logic whatsoever. And so before you get your, your, your pants in a wad about this, understand that even liberal scholars have said it's bad law. It, it's just not well-reasoned. And, you know, it, it's, and in fact, you can find many articles on this. The argument for Roe v. Wade is the same argument used in Dred Scott to defend slavery. The exact same argument. And so I praise God that it's overturned here in Ohio. What happens is you have what's called trigger laws. Now, if you don't know what that is, it has nothing to do with gun control. A trigger law states that whatever the state's policy was in January of 1973, before Roe v. Wade, that becomes the law of the state until or unless the state legislature moves to alter it. So as of Friday at 10, 11 a.m. when Roe v. Wade was overturned, Ohio reverted back to its 1973 state law, which reads that no one can pursue an abortion legally in the state of Ohio after six weeks of pregnancy. Now, as of yesterday, because the state legislature had passed what's called the heartbeat bill. The heartbeat bill says you cannot pursue an abortion once a sonogram detects a heartbeat. That was tied up in litigation. It passed the Ohio House, Governor DeWine signed it, but then people sued, it went to the federal courts. As of yesterday, the federal courts had to reverse themselves. The heartbeat bill is now the law of the state of Ohio. So that's where we are. Roe v. Wade did not make abortion legal, and it does not, its overturning does not make abortion illegal. It goes from state to state. So those of you who agree with me on scripture and theology that the Bible teaches very clearly it is only God who opens and closes the womb. It is God who puts life together. Understand that this divide between those who are pro-life and pro-abortion is not going anywhere because New York, California, other states have already made it very clear. Washington State, Oregon, Hawaii, etc., have made it very clear. And I believe Michigan and Pennsylvania as well have made it very clear that they're not only going to keep abortion, they're going to expand it. Uh, California is talking about expanding it even after birth. So it's a long way to go, but I praise God for what happened both as a constitutionalist and as a Christian, that it has been overturned. That's what I have to say about that to quote the poet Forrest Gump. Now, let's move on. We're talking about the Gospel Project. The Gospel Project, which we've been following, the kids are following, you are following. Whatever we learn in here is the same thing the kids are learning. If you look inside your bulletin, Kayla has put together a little outline there which has three questions, which we will cover in the sermons, and you can take those three questions home with you and discuss it with your kids and grandkids and so forth so that you can disciple your own kids and grandkids and also learn yourself. And so that's what we're doing. Now, we're going to be looking at Genesis 11, 11, 1 through 9, the Tower of Babel story. 
Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, and this didn't hit me until the other day when I was thinking about it. I became a Christian 25 years ago. 25 years ago, I read through the Bible for the very first time. I took a Bible that my older sister, Allie, had given me, blew the dust off of it, opened it up, and started reading. And I remember getting to Genesis 11 and reading through it and thinking, this doesn't make any sense to me. And so we'll look at it, and I'll tell you why it didn't make any sense to me, but now it does. So here we go. Somebody's really upset out there. Genesis 11. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. Makes sense. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let us make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Let me stop there for a second. Now, when I was a little kid, and they would have these children's Bibles or, you know, I remember buying for my son what was called the Action Bible, which is basically a graphic novel Bible. And you'd get to the Tower Babel, and it, the pictures that people would put in there of the Tower Babel were always this big, shiny, beautiful tower. Okay, now what we just read said, when they say made of bricks, they don't mean red brick, they mean mud. This was a big hunk of mud. This was an ugly thing. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky, literally in Hebrew, the heavens. This will make us famous, or literally, this will make a name for ourselves and keep us from being scattered all over the world. That's important. We'll come back and talk about that in a second. But the Lord came down to look at the city. Isn't that Moses is being cute there? They think they've made a tower that rises into the heavens, and yet God has to come down to see it. In other words, not as high as you thought it was. To look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united, and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Nothing they set their hearts on will be impossible for them. That's important, too. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. Now, we don't know how God scattered them. Some biblical scholars have, you know, kind of pontificated that maybe it was some kind of natural disaster or a tornado or, or something like that that just ripped everything to shreds and, and, and made the land uninhabitable, and they just had to go, and we, but we don't know. That is why the city was called Babel. You heard anybody say, you know, people, Babel? And that's why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. Now, I remember reading that at 25 and thinking, God looks like a bully. What's the big deal if the people wanted to, you know, wanted to hang out together, gather together, and do something that they thought was cool together? We do it. When we build buildings in this country, you know, they're not just buildings. They're often monuments, and we often are in awe of them. I don't know how many of you have been to the top of the Sears Tower in Chicago, but it's impressive. There's a reason why, many reasons, but why we were so upset with 9-11. First of all, the loss of life, the senseless loss of life. 
But second, they knocked down something we saw, the Twin Towers, as a monument, did we not? It still feels weird when I fly into Manhattan and don't see them. Because it used to when you'd fly and you couldn't miss them. So what's the problem? Why is it that God is treating these people as sinning, as rebelling? Well, here's what I didn't get the first time I read it through, and it took me a minute. We're in Genesis 11. If you go back to Genesis 9, guess what God tells the people to do? Scatter and fill the earth. He tells all of Noah's kids and grandkids, etc., scatter and fill the earth. Instead, what do they do? They disobey God and they come together. And then, when they come together, what do they do then? They then say, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make us famous. What's the problem with that? Now look, I want you to understand something. I am grateful, very grateful, that in this country, we have made such incredible breakthroughs in technology and in medicine. I am grateful for that. Haven't been as grateful for Facebook this week, but I have been grateful for, generally speaking, what has happened in our country. I love it. I just am now on the last stages of having shingles. And the medicine, I was miserable, but the medicine that they gave me made it not as miserable as it could have been, and I praise God for that. There is nothing wrong with anyone, especially those who have faith in Jesus Christ, to seek to do something great, to build a business, to employ people, to care for their family, to produce innovation. There's nothing wrong with that. Praise God for that. The problem becomes when that effort that you're engaged in becomes all about you. When it becomes about you having the spotlight, you getting all the credit, it all becomes about you. It gets dangerous. To your mental and spiritual health, to your family and friends, to your business itself, it becomes really dangerous. And I will argue, actually, if you make it all about you, eventually it will destroy you. And the examples are multitude. The problem with these people coming together and seeking to make a name for themselves instead of glorifying the name of God is they're taking the spotlight away from God and putting it on themselves. The Bible is very clear. All glory, that is all, praise, worship, so forth, should go to God and not to human beings. 
The Bible was very clear. All good things come from God. But what about us? One of the great Christian leaders of the Reformation wrote, all true knowledge comes from knowing God and knowing yourself. Now, I'm going to come back to that second one. But the first one is this. The Bible is very clear. God is perfect. His ways are perfect. Whatever he does is perfect. It is perfect, it is holy, and it is right. And so to disobey that is, first of all, stupid. It's incredibly arrogant to say to the being who created the universe and knows everything, I know better than you. But that's what you're doing whenever you disobey God. And the second thing is this. You need to know what the Bible says about human beings. The Bible does not paint a real rosy picture of what human beings are at their core. I've been doing this now. This will be my 23rd year in ministry, I guess. And any time somebody comes with me with a problem, eventually it gets to this. Well, I thought about this and my heart just wants X, Y, and Z. And then I show them the words of Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says the human heart is wicked and deceitful and cannot be trusted. And so I have to tell them, I really don't care, with all due respect, what your heart wants. Because according to God's word, your heart cannot be trusted. And so... What God is doing here, when he looks down and he sees them, and he sees a, this group of people who have, one, disobeyed him. He's told them to scatter. They've gathered. They have sought to make a name for themselves instead of to glorify God. And so when he comes down and he basically, you know, does whatever, knocks his tower down and forces them to scatter is actually an act of love and mercy, not an act of bullying or selfishness because God's plan is always perfect, always. And in fact, as the Bible says, God disciplines those he loves. Now, for those of you, and I know not all of you have, but for those of you who have raised kids or have grandkids, you know what I'm talking about. Sooner or later, any child, no matter how cute they think they are, no matter how much you love them, or your grandchild, who you probably spoil much more than you did your own children, that child eventually will try to do something stupid, correct? Right? I remember watching my son when he was probably two or three years old charge a light socket like he was Ivanhoe on a horse. Now, I could have let him just jam something into that light socket and watch his hair go up like this, 
and learn the hard way, or I could have done what I did, which was grab him and yell no and pull him away and explain to him that's going to hurt you. If you see your child or grandchild doing something, going toward a hot stove or whatever, and you grab them and you pull them and you raise your voice and you tell them no, is that you being a bully or is that you being loving? That's you being loving. So when God comes around and he says, oh my, what are you guys thinking? And he knocks your plan off course. You can get mad all you want, but the simple fact is, what's he doing? He's being a loving father. He disciplines those he loves. And as Jesus' own brother James wrote in James 1.17, all good things come from God. All of them. That's why no matter what you do, you shouldn't seek a name for yourself. You shouldn't seek fame for yourself. You should seek the glory of God no matter what you're doing. If all good things come from God and you've done something, whether in business or in nonprofit or in medicine or whatever, and something good happens, where should the praise go? To God. It should go to God. Take the spotlight off yourself and put it on God. Now, if you don't think that this is your problem, let me ask you a question. Let's say you do something. Don't care what it is. You volunteer. It's something that you do at work. Whatever it is. And let's say you've worked very hard. And whatever you were doing turned out to be successful. And then someone else got the credit. How do you feel? Now, if you're going to tell me you're fine with it, I'm going to have to call you, maybe not out loud, but a liar. None of us like it. We want the credit, don't we? Right? We always want the credit. But according to Scripture, we never deserve it. If something happens and it's successful, it blesses people. It happened because God willed it. And so God deserves the credit. Not you. It's that simple. In fact, even the bad things that happen... are for our own good. Don't believe me? Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I study Greek for hours every day. My wife studies Greek several hours every week. Let me tell you what all things mean from Greek to English. It means all things. Does it mean some there was a very popular book published about 40 years ago by a rabbi that basically said any bad thing that happens, that's not from God. Well, God may not have caused it directly, but he allowed it. And if he allowed it, he allowed it for a reason. I don't know what the purpose of him giving me shingles was, 
I have no idea. Other than I really pay attention to those commercials. I still have commercials because I got the cheap version of Hulu. Yeah, I still have the commercials. They're saying everybody over 50, get the shingle shot. Even though that shot's like 250 bucks. Let me tell you something. If I, if I have to go without eating for a week, as soon as I can, I'm getting that shot. I don't want that ever again. I don't know why that happened, but I trust in God's rule, and for whatever reason, for some reason, he wanted that to happen, he allowed that to happen, all things work for the good. I came to faith out of a health crisis. You know, I was 25, and like most 25-year-olds, I thought I was bulletproof and immortal. And then a doctor walks in, is having problems, and this doctor looks at me and says, I think it's colon cancer and probably pretty advanced. Now, just six years before, my uncle on my dad's side had died from colon cancer. He was a full bird colonel in the Air Force. He had been an advisor to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. At one time, he'd even been the head of Air Force Intelligence. He didn't smoke. He didn't drink much. He ate well. He jogged three miles a day. And he was dead before he was 60. I was 25, but I smoked like a stack drank like a fish, and the only exercise I got was coughing. So I thought, I'm dead. And I went through that surgery and that recovery, and it was painful, and it was nasty. I don't know if you know how they remove a tumor from your colon, but let's just say at 25, I figured out why my grandmother had that, that cushy dome thing she put on the toilet. That hurts. But it brought me to faith. I guarantee you that if God had not allowed that to happen, I'd probably still be an absolute pagan. All things work for the good, those who have faith in him. And God shows mercy to these builders. What? I mean, we've talked about this. When people disobey God, God has the right, as their creator, to do what? Take them out. And in some cases in the Bible, he does, doesn't he? But he doesn't do that to them. He shows mercy to them. He could have destroyed them. Instead, he lets them go as long as they were willing to follow his plan, which again, is always perfect. Is always perfect. Now, how does this 
in any way, shape, or form connect to Jesus Christ. Because one of the things I love about the Gospel Project is that it shows, especially even in the Old Testament, we have a hard time seeing it, how does this Scripture point to Jesus Christ? Because Jesus himself says what? All Scripture points to me. So how does the Tower of Babel point to Jesus Christ? Well, here it is. You need to understand that the early church fathers saw this clearly. They said, look, sometimes what the stories do is they tell the exact opposite of what Jesus does. Humans do this. Jesus does this. Humans attempt to build a tower into the heavens. Why? But you did that because you thought you could manipulate God. The closer you got to God, the closer, more you could manipulate, get what you want. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. Instead, what does God do? God comes down, but when he comes down, he comes down in judgment, merciful judgment, but he comes down in judgment and crushes the tower. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus voluntarily steps down from his heavenly throne to be crushed by the judgment of of God, not to scatter, but to bring his people together as the church. Even at Pentecost, what do we see at Acts 2? The Holy Spirit falls on the apostles, and they go outside, and they begin to speak the gospel, and they begin to speak the gospel in foreign languages, and everybody can understand the gospel. What is that? That's the reverse of the Tower of Babel. The judgment does not come upon those seeking to make a name for themselves. It comes upon the one whose name is above every name. Save us all. He is our Savior. He is our King. And He defines what true greatness is. And in Matthew 23, 11 through 12, what does he say? He says, now notice this. He says, the greatest among you must, must, not should, the greatest among you must be a servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility. I've talked a lot over the last few weeks when we've been doing this about how the big question in Scripture, again and again and again, is God looking to his people and saying, do you trust me? Will you trust me? Here's your garden. It's paradise. Just don't eat off that one tree. Will you trust me? Cain? Sin is crouching at your door. You must master it. Will you trust me? Noah, build an ark. I'll take care of it. Trust me. Again and again and again, the question is, will you trust God? But in order for you to really get there, in order for you to truly trust God, one thing has to happen first. Humility. You will never Trust God if your pride and your arrogance places yourself at the center of everything. 
You will never trust God until you place God at the center of your life. And the only way you're going to place God at the center of your life is to humble yourself. I don't often recommend books outside Scripture for you, but this little thing, I don't know, it costs about 12 bucks. It's 170 pages, and the pages are really small. And uh, this little book, Humility, True Greatness by C.J. Mahaney, it'll cost you 12, 14 bucks. If you're a reader, buy it. It's absolute required reading, in my opinion. CJ says this, he says, Humility is honestly assessing yourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Anytime you think it's becoming about you, ask yourself, who is God and who are you? God is holy and perfect and righteous and just. What are you? So how do you do that? And here's what I like. What I like about this little book is C.J. doesn't just like say, okay, he doesn't just quote a bunch of Bible verses and say, see, there it is, got to be humble. See you and have a good one. He has a number of practical suggestions that I think you should take to heart. I've tried to take them to heart. Don't do them perfectly, but I try. Number one, he says always, and he should be in your bulletin. Always, number one, always reflect on the cross of Christ. Every single day, every single moment that you have, you should reflect on the cross of Christ. You need to remember that the perfect, holy, and righteous, and just king died in your place to pay the penalty for your sins. You cannot save yourself. You cannot rack up enough good deeds to save yourself. Your sin is too great and too deep. You cannot pay for it yourself unless Christ pays it for you. You are damned. You are lost. That's one. Number two, every morning, now this is what I've been practicing. Every morning do two things. Number one, thank God for another day. Every morning, thank the Lord for another day because Hebrews, which we'll get to eventually and so forth, is very clear. You don't get any moment you have in this life is given to you by God. Be grateful. Thank the Lord every morning that he has given you another day. And then you need to follow it up with this as you're looking at your day ahead of you. Let the Lord know, remind yourself, you need God to get through that day and accomplish anything. Anything worth a note needs to be done with God. Now, I will be honest with you, because I get up around 6 a.m., not of my own accord. I have three puppies now, this is the thing. My wife brings the puppies home. Why do they come to me at 6 a.m. for food? Shouldn't she be the one getting up? Yeah, it doesn't work that way. 
And, and they come over, and especially the littlest one, the youngest one, this little shorty, which I just call spaz because he spazzes out all the time. And he comes up to me and he starts doing this on my face with those Freddy Krueger claws. I'll be honest with you, it takes me a minute to go, Lord, thank you for this day. I got to get those little suckers off of me, get food in their belly, wait for them to do their business, and then bring them back inside. But I try to remember to thank the Lord even when I've got like scratches on my face. Every morning, every day, every day practice the spiritual disciplines of prayer, Bible study, and worship. Every day. (laughs) Take your bulletin that you have here. Pray over those who are listed in the bulletin. Just take, what does it take? A minute to pray for the people listed here who are hurting. Pray for yourself. There's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. To pray for humility. To pray that, that the Holy Spirit goes to war with your pride. To pray that you give God the glory. To pray for your family members. To pray for your friends. To pray for your co-workers. Nothing wrong. Do that every day. And if you're like, I just don't have time, what are you doing on your commute to work? What are you doing? Or when you go to the grocery store? Listening to something on your phone? What? It's not worth it, whatever it is. And don't come back with it, because I had somebody do this once. I listened to you preach. Nice try. Still ain't buying it. Use that time to pray, study, to worship, even your commute time, and cast all your cares upon God. No matter how little they are, cast them upon God. You will never, ever have the humility and the trust you need to have sanctifying faith if you don't have a real relationship with God, and that means talking to him about everything. Everything. Every night, every night before you go to bed, anything that is good has happened to you that day, give God the glory for it. Thank God for anything good that has happened to you that day. I don't care if it was a good meal. I don't care if it was that your kids were actually well-behaved. I don't care that it was something happened at work. I don't care if, you know, something's just not hurting anymore. Whatever it is, give God the glory for it, and then thank him for the gift of sleep and accept it. During the week, here's a few other suggestions that CJ has that I think are worth noting. Number one, and this is especially for those of you who are married, see God's grace in others. See the grace of God in others. I don't know how many of you have ever studied Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians. If you're not familiar, let me summarize it for you real quick. 
Paul is writing this church in Corinth, and he says, basically, when he gets into the heart of the letter, he says, you got to be kidding me. Let me get this right. Here is what I'm hearing about your church from hundreds of miles away. Number one, you're suing each other. Number two, you're sleeping with each other. And number three, you're getting drunk at communion. I've only seen that once in my life. When I was doing Revolution and we'd have a Sunday evening service downtown, we'd have sometimes people wander in to the church service drunk. And this one guy wanders in, and the way we did things there was a little differently. I would preach first, call people to worship, and then we'd worship. And I was getting ready to pray, and everybody had their head bowed, and this guy, and we were going to have communion that time, this guy who'd wandered it off the street, who was hammered, got up on stage, grabbed a guitar, and while I was preaching, started playing Bad Companies Feel Like Making Love. I was able to calm him down, get the guitar out of his hand, keep going. The real shame of it was he was doing a pretty good job. Wasn't a bad rendition, honestly. But I, I, I've never seen that. I've, other than that, I've never seen that. And yet, this is how, despite all those problems, this is how Paul opens up his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.4. He writes, I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. How can he say that to that church? Drunk at communion, sleeping with you today? Because what he sees first and foremost is them in Christ. What you need to do with the people in your life if they have faith in Jesus Christ is see them first and foremost as in Christ. That is a person Christ died for. That is a person Christ loves. That is a person the Holy Spirit is working on. You need to have that perspective. What do we do in relationships? With our parents, with our kids, with our spouse. Do we look for God's grace? Nope. What do we look for? What we want them to change. What we want them to stop. We pick on them. Let me give you a dime's worth of marital advice. I didn't come up with this. Believe it or not, this is something my father said to me, and I actually remember. It's not me, those. He told me when I got married. He said, you need to remember this. In marriage, you can be happy or you can be right. But you can't be both. You can bludgeon people over the head and you can argue with them till the sun goes down that you are right. This is how it's done. This is how you should think. This is how you should react. Or you can have peace. I get on Megan's nerves. She gets on, she gets on my nerves. Little things. Little things. She cannot seem to locate a hamper. Um, and, and, and honey, I love you, but a chair is not a hamper. Um, 
she will do things like she loves to work out on the back porch. The back porch is her happy place. She loves to be outside in the warmth with her laptop and her phone and doing her work. And she'll come inside and she'll do something like she'll make herself a coffee. And she'll open a cabinet to get a coffee cup and she'll walk over and she'll put the thing in the Keurig. And we have a Keurig because we don't drink the same coffee. I drink coffee, she drinks hot brown water. And she'll make herself uh, whatever it is and then she'll go back outside and the cabinet's still open. Now to me, that's an incomplete task. Now, I can choose to do like a choose your own adventure. I can choose one of two paths. I can go outside and say, Megan, you are 32 years old. You can close a cabinet. Once you have the coffee cup in hand, close the cabinet, make your coffee, go outside. Now, if you remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books, if you choose that adventure, that is where you encounter the dragon that burns you alive. What you do in that situation is I get up off the couch, I close the cabinet, and I shut up. That's what you do. Because the simple fact is I'm lucky to have her. She wants to serve the Lord. And if any of you think you're in a bad relationship, because I've been doing marriage counseling unwillingly for 20 odd years, I will guarantee you it ain't as bad as you think it is. See grace in others. Do that every single week. Number two, every week. Encourage others. Be an encourager more than a critic. I could not believe this. Now, this is an average. This is an average. On average, on average, an American adult speaks 25,000 words a day. Did you know that? Now, that's an average. For an introvert like me, it's probably five. For some of you, it's like 50,000. But we speak a lot more than we think we do. And Proverbs says that the tongue gives both death and life. How much of the words that come out of your mouth are actually helpful to others, and how much of it is just you complaining? Which leads me to the next one. <laughs> if you do get correction, if somebody does call you out, instead of lashing out, give it at least a few seconds to think about whether or not they're right. Be willing to receive correction. Because the simple fact is, the Bible says this, and it took a long time for modern psychology and leadership experts to catch on to this, but in the last 30 years, one of the fastest growing kind of uh, areas within leadership and psychology is what's called emotional intelligence. And a key part of emotional intelligence is being able to see yourself 
in a more objective way. To see, be able to see yourself as others see you. Now, you may think you already have a handle on that. Let me tell you what every expert in the discipline says. No, you don't. What the Bible basically teaches is this. Your perception of yourself is probably as about as accurate as you looking into a carnival funhouse mirror. You have blind spots. I have blind spots. And if you get correction, don't just pounce, think about it, pray about it. And the other thing is this, when you're in all this, no matter what's going on, don't allow your pride to always dictate your thought process. Don't allow your selfishness to always dictate your thought process. This is what we do. We, something happens and we're constantly reacting. We react and when we react, typically because we're selfish beings with a deceitful and wicked, wicked heart, what we typically react as is in frustration or in anger or depression or whatever. Don't do that. Try your best not to do that. The great British preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his book, Spiritual Depression, he said, one of the biggest problems that even Christians have is they listen to their pride more than they talk scripturally to themselves. They listen to themselves more than they talk to themselves. Now, I'm going to wrap up. There's more I could say. But humility, practicing humility, and it's a discipline. It's a discipline, and it's a rough discipline. But it's one you have to commit to every single day in order to grow more humble so that you grow closer to God, trust God more, and have more of God's peace. That's how that works. If you just live with your pride and your pride and your selfishness dictates everything you do and you think in your life, you will miss the majesty and the holiness of God that is right there in front of you. I know that um, there's been a, a lot of news lately about the uh, royals in England. I will tell you again why, here's how I see grace in my wife. Every time that we're flipping through the news in the morning and they have a story about one of the members of the royal family, my wife Megan goes, I'm so sick of hearing about them. I look at her and say, that's right, baby, be proud to be an American. But during the Queen's, what was it, Platinum Jubilee or, or whatever it was, this is a story that I ran across that I thought was funny. This was probably 20 years ago, back when Elizabeth was probably in her 70s. And she was at one of her country estates. And she decided one afternoon that she wanted to have a picnic. She was going to go into the woods and find a spot somewhere in the woods near her house and have a picnic. And, of course, they were, all these you know, soldiers and, and bobbies, as they call them, they wanted to go with her. And she said, no, 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 no. They insisted. She said, I... My chief bodyguard, who she loved, said, he can come, nobody else. I just want to go have some peace and quiet. And I want to have a picnic. So she wanders off, even off her own property, but she figures she's a queen. And she stops in the middle of a forest, 
and she's got plain clothes on and she drops a blanket down. Her and her bodyguards sit down and she opens a picnic basket and she's sitting there eating cookies and, 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 and drinking tea. And two hitchhikers accidentally just wander into her vicinity. And they tell them, one, they don't recognize her. Two, they just state that they're lost and they need some help getting back to town. And so the bodyguard says, well, here's what you do. You go this way and that way and so forth and you'll make it to town. And then Queen Elizabeth goes, would you gentlemen like some lemonade? We've got some lemonade here. And they're like, oh yeah, we're thirsty. We love some lemonade. So they sit down and they have lemonade, not knowing who they're drinking with. Do not recognize her. They have the lemonade and they get up and they thank her and say, and they're basically calling her mom, which is a way to basically polite way to say an old lady in England. Thank you, mom, for the lemonade. Thank you, sir, for the directions. And Elizabeth kind of with a smart aleck look in her eye said, before you go, how about we take a picture together? And they say, oh, okay. And so they take out one of those back then, it was like a flip phone or something, and they take a picture with Queen Elizabeth. And they're like, oh, okay, well, thank you. And, and they walk off. And after they're gone for about five minutes, Elizabeth looks over at her bodyguard and says, I would give a million pounds to see the look on their face when they show that picture to somebody. We have the majesty of the Holy Spirit around us all the time, and we miss it because we're so focused on ourselves and making a name for ourselves instead of glorifying God. Make sense? Good enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that despite the fact that we've all got a lot of work to do, myself certainly included, we thank you for all good things. May we praise you for all good things every day. Anything and everything, may we give the glory to you as you and you only deserve. We pray for those who aren't here, who are traveling. We pray for those who are, who are sick, like Dad and, and others. And, and, and we just pray, dear Lord, that we will take the focus and the spotlight off of ourselves, transfer it to you where it belongs, that we become a humble people and a trusting people to serve you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. God go with you. Lord willing, see you next time. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.